Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome to The Mentor, I'm Mark Boris. Good ideas often come from a feeling of frustration. That's when they're really, really obvious. And you're probably not the only one pissed off about whatever it is that's pissing you off. Let's take food, for instance. Food is just so hard to get right. Right taste, right smell, right time, right heat, right everything. And often businesses are basically compromising with something. Josh Abelafia and El Curran co-founded a company called Chef Prep because they too were fed up with the compromises they were experiencing, the sorts of compromises we all experience. They have created a two-sided online marketplace where customers like you can select ready-made meals prepared by restaurants. That's right, the chefs in restaurants. Restaurants like Butter, Burke Street Bakery and Huxton's and lots of others which are prepared the way it would be prepared in the restaurant as if you're sitting in there on that particular night. Now, Josh and Elle are ruthlessly efficient and so switched on. And it's apparent they don't let the ego get in the way of the success of their business. We discuss in this conversation minimizing the risk of logistical issues when it comes to launching, setting up and crunching costs and why you need to have the attitude of abundance in everything you think about when it comes to equity, the offer to whether it's staff or external people who are investing into your business. That is your funding round. Abundance, abundance, abundance. This is a really good discussion about marketplaces, raising money, logistics, and a mindset of abundance. So let's get into it. Ellen Josh, welcome to The Mentor. Thank oh, you. Thanks for having us. I, I would just want to say first up to everybody, like um, I have to declare my position. Um, uh, I know Josh through his father, Alex. Um, he's a long, long time friend of Alex, the Abelafia family. Um, and uh, But also I'm an investor <laughs> in Chef Prep. So I have some sort of, um, uh, you know, what they say in every race there's a horse called self-interest. Well, I'm whipping the shit out of this one. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, we'll talk about Chef Prep in a sec. But before we do, uh, one of the things that intrigues me about people like yourselves is this whole con, uh, uh, concept or discussion, do I need to go to university? Oh, wow, I'm at university studying medicine or I'm studying vet science or I'm studying law or I'm studying whatever I'm studying. And shit, all these other people I know are killing it out there um, aren't, don't need a, a degree to do what they're doing. So both you law, law students, both you worked in law firms. You more. I re- did, yeah. yeah. I actually never worked at a law you firm. Never, never and I, I've got a strong view on this. Actually. Okay, well, <laughs> I want to hear because well, I, I want to hear because uh, I mean I know that L worked for a while in the law firm. It's sort of probably helping to fund the business to some extent. To some extent, I don't know how much how much that happened, but how important is to do a degree today, or where where's the benefit for you? Maybe you start first and I'll say my controversial point of view because I think you've got a bit more of a mainstream view on the value of a degree. Yeah, I I think it I, I really think it varies. So I think obviously if you're going into a, a professional industry of like having a degree in that particular, you know, in that particular industry. In, so in obviously if you want to be a lawyer, you have to have a, a law degree. Got so it. that's, you know, kind of part and parcel with that deal. I think for being, you know, a startup founder or an entrepreneur, I don't think it is anywhere near as relevant as, you know, um, 
just having that curious, curious state of mind. And I think you can actually teach yourself a lot of different things. And there's a lot of different other avenues for, you know, learning things like product management and, you know, how to, you know, set up systems and processes and things like that. In saying that for me, doing a law degree, and then also I did a journalism degree as well. I think it really helped frame the way I think about things and the way I think about problems and the way that, you know, I have like a disciplined approach to work. And I think that that's, you know, served me really well, not only just as a lawyer, but, you know, working on a startup. And- but what about having done the law degree? I mean, as a lawyer, I mean, they, they teach you a whole lot of disciplines or they make you learn a whole lot of disciplines as a lawyer, Yeah, you know, how to be efficient with your time and your timesheets and, you know, being, listening to your client, all that sort of stuff and taking proper notes and being fastidious about note taking, et cetera. Um, but you had to do a law degree to get to that position. Yeah, and it is a, it's a really controversial um, and debatable point around what it actually does give you as a tangible skill set, I think, with law. I think the way that they structure the, the way that you think is actually really helpful. So you're looking at case studies, you're you know, going through a process of assessment, you're looking at legislation, you're learning how to interpret things, um, you're debating with other you know, people in your, your, your degree and things like that. You're learning to you know, work well in teams. And I think that sort of structure all comes to play, you know, regardless of whatever you do down the track. Um, I definitely think, you know, with law still that there's a lot of things that you learn outside of university, which, you know, come into practice, like, you know, the note taking, you know, the actual taking of instructions and interviewing clients and, um, you know, the actual practice management side of things. That is all more when you get out into the market and actually start, you know, working as a lawyer that you kind of, you develop those skills. It helps you to think a certain way in a structured way, but it also helps you learn how to learn. Yeah, I think so. I think so. It gives you it gives you that that rigor and that discipline. And I think that's a good starting place to then build upon because obviously that's the way I see that, that's like a soft basis and then you start to build the skills upon on that. So I think having, you know, that sort of framework also then helped me like quickly adapt to, you know, different ways of practicing and, you know, it's just the way that I structure things immediately and then I can kind of replicate that in, you know, process and systems and documentation. Now I, I got to apologize. I don't if if if, if during the, this conversation I call Josh Alex. Um, <laughs> please forgive me because he looks Alex so, so much happy. like his father. It's <laughs> ridiculous, and I I remember his father at this age. So, Josh, tell me what's your view? I, I can I, see a different yeah, view. Coming. So I I don't think university is um, really worth much at all. Like the way that I approached my law degree was I downloaded the database of all the classes that I needed to do, and I found which ones had zero participation marks and had no final test. So I could do all the work at home and never go into university and still pass. So you have the system. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> which taught you me a lot actually funnily enough um, in businesses, like get to that outcome most yeah. efficiently. But I think that for me, I kind of look at university as what it is, is it's a giant credentialing system and it's a signaling system um, to uh, the next level of your life. So if you get a certain credential, that will then allow you to have more access to different jobs in the job market, different things like that. But the tangible skills you get are actually worth far less than the piece of paper that you turn up on. So I think for me, the myth about like it's education, you're learning for learning's sake, like a four-year business degree doesn't really teach you any business fundamentals in the real world. Like a law degree gives you some basic foundations into law, but you still have to learn and specialize in practice. I think really it's like a credential system that you should do. And I think that the way Australia does it is not very good. My brothers both left home um, and went, uh, one went to uh, Canberra and one went to Newcastle to do his medical degree. And I think it's much better actually at that age just to leave home and get out of your home. And the fact that most, you know, people who go to UNSW or Sydney still live at home, the actual most valuable life experience, and this is what I did, was just leave home, learn to be an adult, learn to be self-sufficient over that four years and go out and make mistakes and just realize it's a credential at the end. It doesn't really necessarily give you a ticket or skills that you can use unless it's a practical degree like medicine, for example. But does it give you some affirmation to yourself, though, to say that, well, I've completed this, I now know how to complete it, let's call it a task, but it's, it's a, a program. I can complete something, therefore I can affirm to myself that I'm someone who can do that. Is I, there affirmation in it? I think that other, <laughs> I think other people um, 
would feel that, but I just um, didn't care at all. Um, I remember I got into a big fight with my my dad because I was like, I'll just get it mailed, my diploma, because I was like, I don't care. I was already working full time at the time. It didn't really signal or mean anything to me. My career accomplishments meant a lot more at that time. So to me, no, but I can definitely see my classmates. They were all very moved by it because it was a capping of, of four years. But for me, I always knew it was just a step along the journey. But I can definitely see the value to anybody of just being able to do something in a fixed time and complete it is actually valuable because actually getting stuff done is the most important thing in life. Totally. And what, what about the whole, uh, it could be a myth, maybe it's not, but the, for you guys, for your mm. cohort mm. age group, uh, what about that whole concept of networking? So, I mean, I know where you went to school. I don't know where you went to school, school L, but um, sometimes some people say to me, oh, well, you should send your kids to a particular type of school because they build great networks. They don't learn any better. <laughs> I know that for sure because, you know, my kids all went to Cranbrook. They didn't learn any better at Cranbrook than they learned anywhere mm. else in the world. Um, but they did build good networks. They got mates who were successful, one thing or another. Then again, at university, especially in the law faculties, yeah, there's good networks. I mean, I don't know, if, did you meet Ellen in law school? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, but, I mean, I guess networks are important or are they not? Do you, is, uh, it a, is it a valuable network? Yeah, I, I, th- I think that's actually um, that's um, something we yeah. talk about. It is hugely valuable. Um for the network that you build up. Like I think the value of an MBA is in like you're actually in a cohort of people who are like-minded and ambitious and they want to go through it and that's extremely valuable in of itself. And I think the more the, the reality is those more elite institutions, you end up being friends with people, they end up um, helping each other out and getting to be a part of that is valuable in of itself. But again, that comes down to the credentialing and the network and not necessarily the value of the education itself. So yeah. the product yeah. of education is kind of, uh, not tied to the uh, uh, network and the credential that you get. Yeah, but you can't do one without the other sort of correct, thing. Correct. Yeah, so it's exactly. sort of like it's a necessary thing but not sufficient in that it doesn't give you the outcome. It's necessary, but to get the, the ultimate outcome you're talking about, you need to do one more step. You need to work the networks. You need to maybe try and specialise in the particular area that you're, spe- you're trying to do it in the, at university. It's, it's sort of quite interesting because I, I know that um, – um, Josh has told me about it and, and I like your views on this too, Al, because I, I'd like to get he, – he's fairly forthright, by the way. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I'd like to get uh, Elle's yeah. views on this. <laughs> some balance. I'm going to shut him off uh, sometimes. <laughs> but but uh, this whole concept of networking, Josh told me he's on a number of – in a number of groups that sort of are all entrepreneurs that are all supporting each other, people in your age group, around your age group anyway. Yes. There's a yeah. range. Um, and uh, – and I don't know if this is just a continuation of what you sort of learn at university to network and hang out with people who are like-minded. It's Yeah, it's super important. It's super important. I think for us it's been hugely beneficial to network and meet a lot of different people in a, like in business like ourselves because can you explain how you do it like who how do you do this it's generally it's generally just reaching out you know reaching out to people trying to form relationships becoming part of you know specific groups and then gravitating to people um you know even just hitting people up on linkedin and saying like look like you look like you're doing something really interesting i want to find out more about it i'm working on this can we set up a time to have a chat and then just like literally setting up a time to either have a you know a video conference or a cup of coffee or a drink somewhere and getting to know that person because you find that they're, I mean, we're all going through very similar struggles, even though we might be in completely different industries that we're, you know, operating within. And there's so much to learn from other people. And I think just being open to, to meeting new people in all different aspects of business and, you know, being open to learning from them and being open to sharing your story is like, it's not only cathartic, but it's like hugely beneficial because the way that they may have dealt with a, a problem that may be, you know, a conceptually similar problem to what you're facing can, you know, kind of change the game for you in, in a lot of cases. But what happens if you don't have his personality? Like he's like, you know, like, it's honestly like, you know, you could slam the door in his face and he would just keep talking to you and nothing, <laughs> yeah. nothing affects him. He doesn't, it doesn't give a shit. And I mean, I don't know what your personality is like, but yeah. not everybody has – that that, the, that type of yeah. that, that has a very good entrepreneurial personality to have yeah. because you sort of don't get um, bruised easily. Yeah, and you, like some people say, "Oh shit, oh, should I really reach out to the person on LinkedIn? Looks interesting." What about if they say yeah. "fuck off" or "I don't want to talk to you" or "don't don't reply at all"? I mean, how how do you do all that sort of stuff? 
I think it's about attitude overall. So I think the the two things is like one, um, you know, ninety nine percent of it is just having a crack. Like you have zero downside risk of like reach. Like there was a someone who I reached out to cold, and he was a, uh, a CEO and founder of a publicly listed company. Right, just cold reached out. The downside to me was that my ego would get hurt. The upside was potentially couldn't build a good relationship with somebody. So starting off from the position that the downside is 100% fixed and capped and the upside is unlimited, that's where you've got to start. And I think the other thing is about there's a difference between networking and climbing. And I think people often associate um, networking with climbing, which is- What you Yes, yeah, so climbing is like you go to someone- trying to get something out of them. It's now, very transactional. Exactly, right. exactly. So what's the, I don't want to meet someone who's just trying to get something from me. Instead, I look at people who um, are going, how can I help them, right? And then if you start with the attitude of like, I don't want anything from them, um, I just want to help or meet them or be interested, be curious, and I'm adding value to them, then value can come back to you. And starting from the view of like, how do we grow the pie as much as possible, as opposed to hitting someone up going, I want something from you, or I need this from you and going, how can I be helpful? And always also going to the back to the point that everyone kind of started in your position. If you started with nothing, um, the most successful people in the world started um, from a basis of nothing. So they understand and they empathize. And as long as you approach it in the correct way, um, that's super important. But the other side is that there's a privilege extended to getting those benefits of people helping you. So your job is not necessarily to pass it back to the person, but pass it down. So when someone comes to you for help after you've had success, your job is then to help them and facilitate them and add value because you can't help the person that necessarily helped you as much as they can help you. But passing it forward and having that attitude just means you operate from an attitude of abundance and it tends to flow back and it keeps coming and building and developing where you just go, how can I be helpful? And that attitude then means people in all different walks of life want to help work with you because you're going, how can I be helpful as opposed to how can I take resources? Is that a mindset? I mean, do do you have to structure your mind to think that way or are you naturally like that? I I mean. I think, yeah, I think you have to, you actually have to consciously think about it because I I think a lot of the mindset holding people back around um, networking is thinking that they don't have anything to give to any of those relationships. And I think changing that mindset where, you know, even if you're going out and approaching someone who's far more experienced than you are, who's got like a, you know, much more lengthy career um, than you do, and you're in the early days of a startup, knowing that you may actually have a lot to give that person and a, like a lot of really interesting insights from where you're at that they might benefit from and just having that mindset from the outset is a really important thing to th- to have. If you change that mentality, then you feel more confident to go out to go out to people and open up yourself to I think it's your, your sort of a little bit your generation, to be honest with you. In my generation, um, it was around the other way. Um, you, you were generally speaking networking to get something mm. from somebody that was very, and they would never consider you as having something that you'd give back to them other than, to be frank with you, youthfulness. So I remember many, many years ago, um, one of the things that, um, and I've kept this on, on in my life, um, is that, the senior partners of firms that I worked for back in those days, um, they liked my energy, my intellectual energy I'm talking about, not physical energy. But but for me, it was all about career building. <laughs> That's all they gave a shit about. It was like, how can I leg up from this particular individual? And who does this individual know? Who are the clients of the firm? And then how can I go and uh, learn what those clients are doing and get some experience from those clients for myself? Um, and that, that was that generation. Um, I think your generation is a lot more generous. Um, or maybe much more aware and have a better understanding of networking, um, and which is why I was just interested to hear what you had to say about that. Because for me, it's you, your very first education of these things, in your case, uh, sort of to, to some extent my case too, is when you're at university. They are great, they are great nurseries of um, learning how to do, you're forced to learn how to network. How important is this efficiency point that you made before when you said you went to university and you, you worked out the system, how to get through this with the least amount of effort, but get the right, right outcome. What I, I think the biggest way that we learned, and this is just kind of general advice rather than anything specific in business, is that people get caught up um, doing work and just being busy for the sake of busy is completely useless. Like it, it's, there's no point fundamentally 
um, doing 18 hour days if, <laughs> if it's not moving the ball forward. So I really think that uh, ruthless prioritization is the key and that creates urgency and understanding what is just busy work versus what is actual work. And that kind of comes down to you start with the end state in mind and then you work backwards from there and then identify the tasks that need to be done in order to achieve that goal. So if it's finishing university as fast as possible, well, what's the strategy and then what tasks that uh, can be broken down into like daily actions to lead up that way. So rather than starting with what do I need to do today, it's like, where do I need to end up? And then how do I work backwards from there? And I think the reality is, is that these frameworks exist and people can just copy them. Like there's no point trying to invent your own system or do it. There's things like getting things done. There's tons of great literature out there about how to be really efficient with your work because ultimately there's no point working long hours. And I think the um, uh, uh, worship of uh, hustle culture is not the right one to do. There's no point working long hours for the sake of working out long hours. It's like how do you build a valuable life? And it's like you will end up working long hours, but working out what is important, going backwards from there, and then structuring your life and your work around that will ultimately lead to better results. So, the, yeah, because you're right, the boast of how many hours you yeah. work is all bullshit. Yeah. I mean, mm. really what you want to know is how many efficient hours have you worked. Yeah, what have you achieved in those work. hours? Yeah, like exactly. if you do, I mean, that whole uh, Malcolm Gladwell story about um, 10,000 purpose, 10, purposeful hours, you don't become an expert in anything until you've done 10,000 hours. And it goes right back to the, um, the psychologist that did the original assessment of a, a Berlin School of Music back in, I think, 1890, something like that, where they looked at the protégés uh, in this particular Berlin school. And irrespective of the fact that these individuals are protégés and they had the, you know, all the talent in the world, the ones that ended up getting into um, the um, symphony orchestras, et cetera, as a violinist, in other words, as an A-grade violinist as opposed to becoming a teacher after the number of years you spent at the, at the school, were the ones that spent 10,000 hours. But the interesting thing about that is everybody was taking that away, going, oh, wow, i just got to spend time. It's called purposeful work. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It's yeah. 10,000 hours of purposeful practice. Yeah. So I, I, I learned music at school and I'd play the piano until year 12. And uh, for me, piano, and I had no idea, but piano in those days for me was just, oh, I got to do my hour practice every day. And I'd sit, it was like um, merry go room music, the way I played it. Blah, 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 blah. And I learned it off by heart. But, but there's no fucking value in it whatsoever. Like at the end of the day, it was just wasting my time, to be frank. It was good enough to get through the, the you know, get through the, the, the subject. And I did okay. But like, point was I didn't really get anything out of it. Everyone's got to remember and underline that word purposeful, which is what you just said. Yeah. Efficiency is about being purposeful in every minute you spend. Exactly. In what you do. And if you can get it down from 18 hours to nine hours, that's pretty good. But then you've got another nine hours to do something with that nine hours. Yeah. Purposeful. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, would you agree with- Totally agree. And then jo being reflexive as well, I think is really important. Like actually assessing- Reflective, did you say? Yeah, reflective on the work and assessing the work and actually, you know, testing it out and changing tact based on that too. Because you can be doing, being efficient, but the, the work may be leading you in the wrong direction and you might not be, you know, actually assessing that Who work. pulls who up? I think, well, Ellie definitely pulls me up. But I, I think Ellie, yeah. actually, that point is the, probably the, one of the most important ones. And yeah. I think that's something that I've really learned from Ellie, which is uh, like, yes, you got to be efficient. But if you're not constantly sense checking what you're doing, you could be really efficiently going down the wrong path or pursuing something. Or I was talking to someone about this, about the sunk cost fallacy, about mm -hmm. like, I put so much work into this. Now I've got to keep going. It's like yeah. actually knowing when to cut it and yeah. go, this is not working. We've got to shift. And to your point, it's like you have to be reflexive in what you do to be like, is this uh, and what I'm doing tactically or strategically furthering me to the goals? And is the data coming back and showing that? And if not, then you've got to change because just doing the same thing over and over again when it's not generating results. Is not would would you be doing this if you didn't have Ellie involved in the business yeah. with you? It'd be a disaster and everything would fall over. Okay. So, so I often say, I often say, well, you, yeah. why are you saying that? No, no, I'm just joking. I often say that it, like in my various businesses I do, I cut my brother sews. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I've never done a deal in 25 years that my brother hasn't done the follow through because, you know, I make a mess on the way through, but I, I make a pretty good mess. I cut it up nice. But my brother comes to me, he stitches it up. Yeah. I can't operate yeah, otherwise. You know? I'm like uh, him a little bit, like I'm bouncing off the walls, I'm up and down. Blah, blah, blah. I've got 30 <laughs> deals on the go at once. But, uh, and then, but my brother will just come through very ruthlessly 
And, uh, but very like a surgeon, he just does it and does it and does it and doesn't give up and doesn't let up in one point. Um, my, you know, he's, he's, I hate the word anal, but he is sort of like that, you know I mean? He's sort of crazy. And, uh, but I couldn't operate without him. Yeah. I just couldn't. I mean, I would not be anywhere near as so-called successful if he hadn't been there following through all yeah, the way through. I can't operate that way. So for me, being in partnership is really important. Mm. Definitely. You need that counterbalance. It's really important. You I mean, I just need, because I know what I'm good at, but I know what I'm shit out at. One, one of the biggest um, lessons that I learned very early on is that people make a mistake in their career um, and what they try to learn on by optimizing to fix up their weaknesses, which is really bad because if you've got uh, a fixed uh, allocation of time, which is there's 24 hours in a day, and you're going to improve something, if you keep improving on your weaknesses, you're only ever going to get to probably average. Whereas if you keep doubling down on your strengths, you can have an outsized skill in that. And the important thing is to go work out what you're not good at and then find partners who are great at it and then work with them uh, together. And then one plus one equals three in that scenario. So you can have a partnership where the skills are so different and so complementary and realizing that nothing is done on your own is really important. Go, I'm going to work on what I'm really good at and understand that I'm not going to be good at those things. And that's okay because you have different strengths and weaknesses. And that's why Ellie and I work so well together because we are completely different in terms of working styles, communication styles, management styles, but the combination works really well together. And actually a really bad partnership is when there's two of the same people there because all you're doing is you're you're over-indexing on something. You need people who have different skill sets. And that's not to say Ellie could probably do a better job at some of the things that I do, but like dividing it up and saying like, okay, we're going to be clear about who does what, um, understand that you have these weaknesses and then asking for help on things that you're not good at is mm. super important as well. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting the way you speak and I was listening to Alex's language and, um, and I have been listening to uh, Alex, Josh's language <laughs> and I've been listening to it for the last, uh, say, t- 20, 30 minutes and his language to me in terms of if I was looking at language to indicate how a person thinks is very mathematical, um, beyond logic but more mathematical. So um, it's um, looking at everything because efficiency is about math- mathematics and, and being mathematical at something, you know. Mm. And, uh, his process is very mathematical. Um, don't waste time on things. Every, out, of every, out of every hour, I want to get an hour and a half. You're like, you know, I'm, I'm trying to leverage, leverage, leverage. Leverage is mathematical. Are you a thinker like that? Do you think like that or do you think the other way? I say I think the other way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'm definitely more... I'd say I'm more analytical. I'm, I'm more concerned with making sure that, you know, I think you put it really nicely with the relationship that you have with your brother where Josh will create these opportunities and then I will come and actually make those opportunities happen in practice with, you know, putting them into place and getting everyone's buy-in, managing the team to do that, you know, project managing the work through. And then I also am probably a little bit more like, I would say I think more I'm more emotionally in tune. Empathetic. Than, yeah, empathetic than than Josh is, which I think, you know, from a management perspective, that works really well because I think you need someone also to then sit there and pull people together, get people, you know, influence people to do things in in the company. Um, and then understand what makes people tick and what motivates people. And that's kind of like where my strengths lie, I think, in yeah. chef prep. I th- I think that's one thing that um, you know, that point of empathy is really key because I think, you know, people make this mistake often where they think you're the boss, you say something, it happens, or you don't have a certain title in an organization, you're more junior and you can't make things happen. That's just all not true. Um, even if you're the boss, you know, Ellie and I are both CEOs of the business, so we have the same title and rank. You can't actually make anything happen by saying, go do this. That never works. You have to get people to want to do things. And Ellie's ability to get people on board, to buy in, understand their needs and get them to do what you want by aligning to what they want is really key because you can never make anyone do anything. It's, you know, um, and that's one of the most important things to do is go like, how do I have that empathy, understand people, communicate in their language? And Ellie's fantastic at that. So it sounds like a perfect, um, a perfect structure for us to go into the second half, go to the break now. We're going to talk about um, Chef Prep. Um, what is it? What it does? I want to understand the, the mathematics of the thing. In other words, um, the logic around it, um, the, the, the market size, and how you 
and are adapting the business to make sure you meet the market logic. So we'll go to the break and we'll come straight back. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Well, we're back here with Elliot and Josh Abalafia from um, Chef Prep. Um, it's a it's sort of like a new business in in some respects as a startup. Um, who's going to tell me what does Chef Prep do? I'll kick off with what Chef Prep does. So Chef Prep is a online marketplace for restaurants to produce ready made meals that we then consolidate and deliver to customers across New South Wales at the moment. So effectively, it's a two-sided marketplace um, and it came out of our frustrations with the current food delivery platform. So when I was working as an entertainment lawyer, I was a partner of the law firm, I was working crazy long hours, um, I was finding it really hard to manage my weekly meals. So I was going through a process of meal prepping on the weekends for the following week and cooking like the same meals. For, punish, total punish. Uh, total nightmare. <laughs> and I don't like cooking that much. I, I, I love food. I love food. I love eating out. I love restaurants. I love hospitality. But I hate cooking. It's a total I abs- absolutely hate it. And so I did that for a few months and I was, you know, you'd end up eating into your whole weekend just doing your, your yeah, meal that's prepping. What I mean. And then we found, so we obviously- Plus when you, sorry, interrupt, but when you no. make the, then on Thursday night when you go, oh shit, I don't really feel like that. Exactly. Yeah. You get to the Friday <laughs> meal and it's looking a little bit sad. It's sad five days well. in a yeah. row Forget and you're just it. like, ah, it just feels like Groundhog Day. Yeah. So um, yeah, got really frustrated with that process. And we obviously tried out, you know, all the other, the meal delivery platforms and they've all got their, their pros and their cons. So obviously like with, you know, kind of stock standard food delivery platforms like Uber Eats and, and DoorDash. That's, you know, great for convenience, but um, at the same time, it's, you know, you can only order from one restaurant. And you can't plan with them either, can you? You can't plan with It's sort of a it. transactional thing. Oh, that's what we feel like tonight. Yeah. Exactly. You've got to eat it within a 24-hour yep. period. It's yep. not really good for, like, weekly meal planning. Um, we tried the ready-made, oh, sorry, the, the meal kits, and I found that was even more frustrating than cooking myself. You mean, like, light and easy and all that stuff? Yeah, yeah. like uh, HelloFresh and things oh, yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, And, you know, I found that that didn't really work for us because I'm cooking someone else's recipe. You've still got all the waste. Yeah, you, yeah, you know, yeah. You're spending a lot of time on that. Um, and then we obviously tried also the the ready-made meal providers, so like your My Muscle Chef and things like yeah. that. And from our perspective, because they're mass manufactured, we didn't I think that the quality was quite there for what we yeah. were looking for. After a while, you can get a bit bored with it too. Exactly, exactly, because you've got the same flavors to play around with. So we thought, you know, I was kind of looking, I came up with the idea and I think subconsciously I'd noticed that restaurants had started um, playing around with producing ready-made meals during the, the first lockdown and they were selling them out of their premises. And I thought, well, why not build a platform where we can actually give them the ability to, to reach new customers and to sell to a much broader market? And then we can also give customers a great deal of variety because they can order from all different restaurants at the same time. So that's kind of where Chef Prep the concept came from, and that was we came up with the idea January last year. Yeah. So, I mean, like, just out of interest, um, how do you raise this? I mean, do you remember the moment you raised it? Did you say to Josh, my God, I've got this great idea? Yeah. 
Yeah, Literally? I did. I was, what about this? I was well, she in came the down in her shower cap from the shower. I always came up with crazy ideas and he would always. But uh, would you, is that because you were um, always talking to each other about the drama associated with having to get the meals prepared and delivered to you? Whatever yeah, it is. yeah. And then one yeah. day you just come down and you said, Wait a second. Unbelievable this could idea. work. Yeah, th- that was exactly it. And for the first time, I've, ha- I've had a couple of batshit crazy ideas previously and Josh has just like, you know, poo-pooed them completely. And this one, like when I saw his face, I was like, oh, shit, this has actually got legs because he was interested in it. So we started to, you know, tease it out and explore it. And that's so, But that's how do you approach it? That's interesting because, I mean, you were running other businesses and you've done a lot, quite a few startups, mm. et cetera, um, and you would have been working at a law firm in those that's days. That's correct, yeah. Um, do you say, oh, my God, I've got to. I've got to give you the time of day because I don't want to f- her to feel like I'm, um, you know, like just dishing the <laughs> idea. Or, or were you, or are you genuinely interested on every occasion? Um, well, I think Ellie and I have a weird relationship where we talk a lot about business, like uh, just generally and prior. Like I had a weird fascination with the economics of the media industry before. Um, and that's one thing that we bonded over. And still, weirdly enough, it's something that is entertaining. So with Ellie, when we come with ideas, it's never really like uh, a shutdown on just like, no, that's not going to work. It's like uh, analytical discussion about like, here's why I think this wouldn't work like this, this and this reason. Like, I think this would be challenging for that reason. That's why I don't think it would work. And then we kind of go through that as well. Uh, with this one, it was like um, a lot of the earlier boxes got ticked. But I think um, in the sense of poo-pooing ideas, like I think one thing to understand is that it's going to be a million times harder than you think, but you kind of need to be irrationally optimistic to even get going. And I think that we um, took uh, now two rounds of investment from venture capital. Um, and those businesses are ones that have a what's called a power law. So they need to return a certain amount. And the whole premise of that power law and the way that it returns is means that the ideas are going to sound crazy and they're going to be extremely difficult. So just because someone says no or says it's not going to work, doesn't mean you shouldn't pursue it. You've got to understand why they're saying no, taking that feedback into your mental model and adjusting it and going, oh, can it work or can't it work? But it's you've got to realize that you're trying something crazy, trying something to really disruptive. And that means that a lot of people are going to say no. So just because people say no or don't agree with you, um, take on their feedback and listen to it and account for it, but don't just not pursue it. Because but on, well, on Chef no. Prep, though, when, when, you, when you and Ellie were talking about this, what were the non-negotiables? So what, what are the things you say, well, hang on, it's got to have this. It's got to be a marketplace, for example. Or uh, how, how do you work out what the non-negotiables are yeah, and tick those boxes? So I think if you look at it, um, you know, and we'll, we can talk about where we want to take the business, but I think the way that we looked at it really simply is that you've got to, you know, when, when people come to me with uh, business ideas um, and they say, oh, I want to raise money, I want to do this, um, they often start with the idea I've got to raise money, but they don't think about the other person on the other side of the table, like, and how does it work and what are their thoughts? And really what we start off with is that as a baseline, you know, we want to take Chef Prep internationally, but assuming we can only do it in Australia, um, you know, you've got a customer base of 25 million people, right? So that is your whole market of people that are currently there. And then you got to understand like the dynamic of the product. So if you've got a product that you can only sell people once, um, you know, a good example of this is the Casper mattresses in the US who are having some trouble. Like there's only so many people that can buy a mattress, like, mm. and you're only going to buy that mattress once. Mm. So understanding how big is the potential realm of people that can buy your product? Um, how often is that transaction with them? I know you do mortgages. So you, every month you get a payment from the customer um, and there's a large amount of customers. So that business actually makes sense. So those two things are kind of like, at the core is like, um, you know, is the market big enough? So um, what's your model with that? And then understanding of those 25 million people, how many do you actually need to actually make this work? So we kind of did on the back of the um, envelope to achieve the outcome, we need 0.1% of Australia buying meals a week to get an exit outcome that we wanted. And that was such an achievable goal that was like, okay, point, do you think 0.1% of people will buy? Uh, ready-made meals or these types of products? The answer is probably yes, which means, okay, well, we've got something viable here. We now have a market that's big enough, a model that's big enough. Now, how for the cheapest price can we test those assumptions? And that's what we did. We literally put up a landing page um, uh, that cost us two and a half grand. We bought some Facebook ads. 
and we approached a bunch of restaurants and we validated the restaurants wanted to do it and the customers wanted to do it. And that whole exercise cost us probably five, $10,000 to validate everything. And that way we could then go out to people and be like, here's a valuable idea, here's viable. We ticked all the boxes of, we've got the markets big enough, um, there's repeat transactions so that we can generate an ongoing revenue stream. And we've already shown that customers want it and partners want it. Now we're gonna go out and do this. So it's like kind of going through that model. And then once you've done that, the modeling and you've tested it out there and you found that there were people who want to take it up, what was your next big step? What were like, you know, you've got to build a system, you've got to build a, a, an IT, you've got to build a back end, IT back end, you know, you've got to be able to, do you do the transactions yourself or the transactions are done with uh, the restaurant? Uh, we do a, we use a third party. It's, it's, but it's what's, on your site though. Yeah. 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 We control the marketplace. Um, I think, so it was really like scoping out the work after that point in time and then building a team, building a team. We knew that we had to build a team very quickly to make this actually happen and make it tangible, make it real because me and Josh working on the business together, like we, we have a finite capacity and we can't, we obviously don't have the expertise in certain areas like engineering and, and um, you know, operations and product and things like that. So we knew that we needed to attract the right people. So for us, key was really doubling down on, you know, pretty much understanding what our vision was and going out and selling that vision to people that we wanted to hire. And you said engineering. Engineering, You, you yeah. mean in terms of software? Yeah. Software, yeah. yeah. So, so, so software engineers, so yeah. someone who can build build the back end. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah, that's the exactly. most important part of it. Um, I mean, is this app-based, by the way? Uh, uh, no, it's web-based. Web-based. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. you've got to get someone who can build all the um, – infrastructure that sits behind it. Exactly, um, so, exactly. Yeah, out of interest, how do you find these individuals? I mean, do you go to LinkedIn or, I mean, it's a recruitment game, but uh, it's not an easy Stop. one to do because, I mean, you go and find, it's, you yeah, know, it's, like third year computer engineering or computer science students or what, I mean, what, I mean, when you don't have a lot of money at the beginning to throw around it. Throw yeah, around. so, well, I think the, the, the point about not having a lot of money to throw around at the beginning I think is really important to before you start understanding what type of business you want, because ultimately you're in business, you got to make money. So there's two ways you can make money in business. One is selling something or one is uh, generating dividends uh, to pay you. And we um, and when you are looking at a dividend generating business, oftentimes you won't necessarily go um, focus on raising and growing really quickly because yeah. you got to have profitable, sustainable yeah. cash flows. So our model was we want to be, go really, really large and then exit through an IPO or an exit, which meant that the way we could fund the business and how we could go hire people was then dictated by that strategy. So establishing that first, to be like, okay, we're going to need a certain amount of capital. This is how we're going to structure the capital, structure all the shares and everything like that to allow us to do it. That was really important. So we could then actually go hire um, really high quality people and pay them market, market rates, rates yeah. as well. That was a big key for us for attracting talent. So you didn't go hunting down um, students who want to get 40 bucks an hour you, who, who are probably competent but, uh, you know, not that competent, not experienced. Every um, founder that I've met said that uh, when you under when you under-index on staff and go for the cheaper option, it ends up costing twice as much because you yep. either lose the time or you end up having to get rid of them and hire someone more senior to come in and do it. Anyway. Also debilitating and and fr- frustrating. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. you go, oh, shit, this is never going to work. And you yeah. need to, you, like in the early days, you need to get the foundations right. And yep. getting the foundations right usually, you know, requires people who have got a bit of experience setting up like their area of expertise within a business. How and do you find these people then, Ellie? Like when Google and Amazon, everyone is sucking the oxygen out of yeah, the system. Yeah, yeah. How do you find these dudes and go- girls? Well, we, we sort of, we were a bit bit cheeky. We reached out to people, a lot of people early on via LinkedIn. So we, we, we had an idea in mind of who we wanted for particular like heads of departments or, um, you know, chief technology officer roles and things like that. So you're trying and to, we, sorry, I'm going to interrupt because it's important to me. Do you find, do you find, did you say you go to find the, so the chief of whatever yeah. and get that individual then to fill in below themselves? Do you go to the top first? In other words, the manager yeah. of that particular yeah. area of the business? Yeah, yeah. We we started our hiring was much more senior roles to start with. So instead of going at the the junior or the mid level, yep. we went for um, much more experienced yep. people at the outset because we wanted them to set up their own departments, especially in areas where we didn't feel comfortable, you know, assessing candidates for those roles. So yep. I think engineering is a perfect example of that. Like we 
we both don't come from an engineering background. So us setting up an engineering team with, you know, junior engineers is probably going to be a recipe for disaster yep. for us. So we wanted to make sure that we were hiring the right people. And we we sort of went out and specifically looked at comparable companies and looked at the skill sets that we needed and went out and approached people individually. And we were just lucky that we could sell people on the dream and get them on board. Um, and we, we ended up attracting a, a group of amazing, amazing talent, you know, in such a short period of time. So, And I think that word Ellie uses is really important is selling. Like ultimately, if you want to start a business um, and you say, I don't want to do sales, it's like, well, you probably shouldn't start Too a business bad, yeah. because you're selling to the, the entire time you're doing a business, you're selling. You're, when you raise money, yeah, people aren't giving you money. Mm. You're selling equity. You're mm. selling a share of your mm. business. So you're selling then when you uh, find partners, like uh, in our case, it's restaurants or distributors, um, we're selling to them. And staff, when you're recruiting, you're selling to them. Um, over time, just with any business, like selling gets easier. Like um, Yeah, once you've got a reputation and, you know, you've got publications putting you out there you're known for x y and z and you've got like you know consistent revenue flows like it makes it a lot easier to attract talent but in the early days you're really selling people on a dream you're, you're coming in and, and saying, you do that like, personally yeah. yeah 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 all all the hires thus far have been us yeah recruiting people yeah or referred from other staff members but yeah. most of it's come from uh uh Cold, like cold approaches to people that we think are fantastic, uh, meeting them, going through a process to interview them and then bring them on board. But yeah, I think to, uh, one thing to this point is like selling them a dream, but I think selling the dream is not selling them a fantasy as well. Like I think companies like Canva, um, Afterpay, Zip, like all fantastic businesses. Um, but there's a, you know, uh, a term that's applied to them that I don't think is relevant anymore, which is a startup. Uh, and a startup is a group of people bringing something to the world. They've done that already, and now they're hugely successful, huge businesses, and they employ probably th thousands of people, right? So people who were really like building things um, are different to people who are like managing things, and those companies are now mature where they've got product market fit, they're in market, and it's a different set of challenges that they're going through. And people who like the earlier challenges, that's still what they like working on. So oftentimes you can find amazing talent because they're like, Actually, my skills can be applied to a different subset of problems rather than I don't want to be one of a thousand working on this tiny subset. Like there's a guy at Google who his job is just to make the, the, that button work a thousand times faster. Mm -hmm. And like, the, the, like that is his job. Just like that button is just his job, right? That's very different to working on something holistically and bigger and people get uh, joy out of that. So mm -hmm. selling them on the dream of like, hey, we're actually going to build something together. You're going to be part of it. You're not going to just be one of a thousand. You can make decisions here. Like you can influence the shape and direction of the company. People respond well to that. So understanding where you are and how to attract them into your world is super important. And the dream is not necessarily like the dream of um, we're going to make you a hundred million dollars and you're going to be this mm. super rich person. It's mm. like a dream of like, what do I want to wake up every day and work on? That's the dream of selling them, not the dream of the exit opportunity. And how yeah, important really is equity? Um, super important because... Um, the staff equity I'm talking about now. No, no, no. It's it's it's, 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 it's one of the most important things ever because let's say um, we so we just completed a raise. We just raised another three million dollars. If no one besides us had equity in the company, um, the uh, incentives would be for the staff and for everybody to try maximize the, that amount of resource that's allocated to them because the more resources, you know, maybe take a higher salary or you know, spend more money on their department or be a bit wasteful with the money. But as soon as you go, you're an owner in this business and every dollar that we spend is also a dollar that you're spending, that you own. And if you spend it inefficiently or you try to do something that's not for the betterment of the business, but betterment of yourself, now the equity completely aligns it because everyone here, his job is to get the share price from A to B and that's being efficient with money, efficient with time, efficient with whatever. But because they have ownership in the business. It's not just like they feel like they've built something, but they have an actual holding in the company. And if it's successful, there's any um, success in the future is going to be far outweighed by yeah. trying to get a bit more now. It's a great point. I think it, it is. It's about alignment and then that ownership mentality because I think when people feel like they, they own a part of the business, there's a different mentality attached to that across the board. And then I think ESOP 
is really important for the whole ecosystem in general. Aesop, Aesop not being the uh, Greek mythology, but <laughs> no, no, no. The employee Aesop being share empl- options. Employee share yeah. options scheme. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, yeah uh, and, you, and, and um, uh, Josh has told me about, I mean, you don't need to mention the law firm, but you guys have a quite a, quite a simple Aesop, but it's quite efficient as well. Yeah. It's 10% of your salary or something along those lines, is it? Yeah. I, I think um, to the, the, you know, right at the side of the conversation, we'll talk about attitude, right? Um, and coming from an attitude of abundance, right? I think people often with equity think about things in terms of percentages, like what percentage of the company do mm-hmm. I own? Mm-hmm. Um, and, the, and that is toxic, um, not because you don't want to um, uh, have people understand what percentage of the company they own, but people just can't wrap their head around the fact that when you raise money, you dilute. So mm. the, your, your ownership will go down. So people every time go like, oh, you know, we just raised another round of financing now. I own I less of own more. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. I own less of the company now. <laughs> What's going on? And what we say to them, it's like, well, if you look at it, actually the but, size of the pie has grown. Where yeah, so you got more yeah, value. Exactly. exactly. Less valued on your per option yeah. basis. Exactly. Yeah. So the reason why we do it that way is so people understand it's like, okay, yeah. you get this dollar value in equity. And then at the last round, it was valued at this. So say it was valued at um, $10 million, right? So you had $100,000 worth of options at uh, $10 million. When we go raise at $100 million now, it's worth a um, million dollars. So they yeah. don't feel like their percentage has gone down, but their value has gone up. Yeah, so, so it makes yeah. 900000 Exactly. Yeah. Example. Exactly. Yeah, and I think it's incumbent on founders to understand um, those employee equity like uh schemes and to actually explain that to their staff because there's a lot of misunderstandings in um in the industry around how they actually operate and how they work and what the entitlements actually mean how it's structured so i think um like from that's one benefit of having a legal background is being able to like understand those like sort of complex regimes and then to actually explain that to staff in in a simple terms in, in a way that they no, can digest. I, I don't want to sort of yeah. Yeah, but I, it, I'm not trying to undermine anyone's thinking, but like it's ex- got to be simplified. Exactly, exactly. And and to so we're we're in the process of actually trying to create some resources around that. Um, not only for our staff, but for like the the broader industry that you can use so that it can be, you know, a little bit like clearer and better understood by people because there's a lot of different ways of doing it. Um, and I think that there is like a lot of murkiness around how it actually yeah. operates in practice because we are like generally speaking, you know, the the whole startup uh, industry is not super, you know, super like advanced in, in Australia and you don't have a whole bunch of exits where options are coming into play a lot of the time. So I think it is, it's like a really important thing for the industry to understand how it works. How, um, in other words, how can I convince someone this is valuable? Yeah, yeah exactly. There's, there's value in this. Like, yeah. I mean, someone being your employee. Yeah, or, or the staff member. I like this is valuable. Yeah, yeah. And, and this is why it's valuable. But this is what you got to do to make it valuable too. By the way, you, I mean everyone's got a part to play. That's right. we, we we're running out of time, so I, I want to ask you this. We are here to talk about chef prep. Um, and I've been I've been sort of really curious to find out the way. Tell you me where think. chef at prep. Tell is me where at chef at today. You've just done a raising. At just raised today. You've just done a raising. You've just raised, finished a raise. This week, last week, last week. Uh, week before Christmas? Yeah, we signed all the term sheets on Christmas. Well, we did yeah, we did the first half just before, and then on Christmas Eve, we signed all the term sheets for everything. Um, so we raised $1.25 million in May um, of last year and then just closed another $3 million um, uh, at the end, so about $4.25 million, um, in total. And you got some good heads um, on there? So far. And you got some good heads on there? Yeah, we've got some really good um, – uh, obviously, you're an investor. We've got um, uh, Artesian, who's one of the larger funds in Australia, GFC, who's one of the larger global funds. Um, Unfortunately, but like yes. Slack and Facebook. Yes. Yeah, that's what everyone <laughs> says. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so there's some really good backers there. Then we've got, we've got some great angel investors. Yeah, some um, really great industry knowledge. Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, someone who's formerly very high up at Airtasker and a founder who sold – the equivalent of Uber Eats in the UK for a few hundred million pounds. He's also an early investor, um, but I think we're just really stoked where we're at now. So um, shortly we'll be able to announce a big, uh, make a big announcement about Melbourne and expanding down there and becoming national. Um, right now there's 10 of us in the, I don't know, 12 of us in the team full time. Um, someone just accepted another offer, but 
by the middle of this year, we want to be about 35 staff full time. So we're actively hiring and scaling. And we've kind of hit that uh, inflection point now where it's just like, go, 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 scale, 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 and hit that next level of milestones we need to unlock so the next tranche of capital. In terms of, so, um, in terms of um, restaurant, Restaurants, um, restaurant, like, restaurants, um, like whatever the vendors what, are, you call them restaurants. Whatever the vendors are, cafes, I guess, restaurants. So who would you? Yeah. would you? How many vendors would you have signed up now? I think thirty or so. Yeah, we've got about thirty. So we've got around twenty-two live on Chef Rep, and almost it's probably over a hundred different meals to choose from, and then we've got another ten to 15 vendors being onboarded, but we're now starting to expand out our product category. So we're getting dry goods. So our focus is on which long shelf life frozen, goods. Which frozen, meals, frozen, 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 frozen food, frozen yeah. Meals, if pre-prepared meals, yeah. if that's the word. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. the meals are frozen, um, which I think there's like, you know, some negative connotations with, but um, our restaurants, we've worked really closely with them to actually design the meals so that they are amazing when you unfreeze them. Um, but the benefit of having the frozen model is that we store all the, you, you the meals store. on behalf of you, our you, restaurant. You store. We store them yeah. so we can, can then cons- consolidate them for um, customer orders, which means that you're not limited to ordering from one yeah. restaurant or so one vendor at a yeah. So it gives me you more can, choice yeah. as a consumer. Exactly. Theoretically, you and could then, order 22 different yeah, restaurants yeah. in one order. Yeah, yeah. Like, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah, exactly yeah. right. And then all the, also the restaurants benefit from a marketplace model where they're, you know, in the same you know, box and delivery box with other restaurant partners when they can benefit from so like I, brand payloads and I'll go on all the rest I, I, of that. I'll go on the chef website and what do I have to do if I'm a customer? customer do I have to, I have to register, give you my details? No, just no. go through and just, check out. Just check out. Add the cart. Just add whatever you want into your cart and then we're delivering three times a week at the moment but we're moving towards next day delivery. So, yeah, it's effectively as easy as whatever's in stock, whatever you like the look of, you put it into your cart. We package it up feedback, for you, you and then you, we deliver you it out. Feedback feedback from, you, yeah. you, you seek feedback from Yep, or feedback from yeah. or any customer, send us feedback. We ask them to rate the meals uh, so we constantly okay. improve them. But, um, yeah, no, that's where kind of like some of the ideas for the dry goods came from because now like so we'll be going live, I think it's next dry week. Dry goods means what? With dry bun- goods means what? So oh, like right, muesli's, right. chili oils, cocktails. Yeah, things that you can keep in the pantry. So you want to wake up, have like so we're with a, macad- a great macadamia milk uh, company. Uh, adding coffee, so anything that you can fit in your pantry as well from great restaurants and cafes, doing jerky now, <laughs> tons of different like condiments yeah. and stuff that you can just go, I just want to have goods made from the best restaurants um, and fantastic producers and you just you know select them and we consolidate in one order and, and set it out to you and we'll be doing cool cocktails so soon and stuff like that as well. Ultimately, so apart from it, this know, ultimately being, something you know, it gets done overseas, being, something like, it gets like, done overseas, you roll it out at, like, internationally, you roll it out at, Internationally, what in terms of your product lines? What and, in terms uh, of your product your lines? Expansion, and, uh, where do you, where do you see it? And say, where do you, where do you see it? Like, I'm not sure your investors ask now. Like, I'm not sure your investors ask you this sort of question. Yeah, I think maybe in in the near term, in six months, we'll probably have, uh, based on the current run rate um, and a few things that are in the works, about 200 different brands um, on the platform wow. in six months. Um, of that, there'll be probably 20 different categories of products from. Uh, daily items uh, like uh, pantry items, uh, cocktails, drinks, health meals, um, uh, just basically almost like anything you can buy in a yeah. supermarket but made by restaurants yeah. is where we're yeah, kind of going down premium. towards. Are issues such as uh, waste um, and or plastics and those things, um, uh, things that you are using as sort of giving a bit yeah. of an edge? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, the, a big big part of actually moving towards the the frozen model was the food wastage issue. So people can store, you know, the meals for between one and three months in their freezer, which gives them flexibility to eat it, obviously reduces food wastage. And then we facilitate uh, partners with packaging if they don't already have their own packaging and the packaging's all biodegradable, um, home compostable, it's microwave safe, freezer safe and oven safe. So Because that's one of my objections to some of these meals that you talked about before mm. where you can go and buy them at the department stores um is the amount of plastic etc like oh, just so much it kills waste me. and uh i mean i'm you know i'm a different generation but a lot of people you're selling to your cohort very conscious of this sort Definitely. of stuff really yeah, yeah. so yeah. we're so we've um so all our packaging now is um uh, recyclable so we're moving to even more recyclable packaging i think is it next week uh, yeah, relatively. Yeah. So. so instead of using thermal liners um, made out of recyclable plastic, we'll be moving to wool 
um, using a different form of ice that actually it's a type of dry ice that evaporates, which means that there's no waste with it. There's no plastic or anything. Uh, new containers that are also insulated, but um, uh, made out of recycled cardboard. So all that stuff is being, uh, we've been very conscious of, and we even um, are looking at how to offset some of the carbon from any deliveries as well. I think that nowadays um, it's not, it's almost like having a website was 20 years ago where it was like, you kind of, some people had to do it, but now everyone has to have a website. It doesn't matter if you're a, a personal trainer or whatever. I think now um, the climate responsibility is going to be every business has to think about it because people just won't buy your products if you're, um, if they're generating tons of waste. And I think that will come for every industry and it doesn't matter what you're doing. It just has to be part of it. So, And it is about sort of come footprint too, but it's, and it, it's one that someone's going to have to deal with over time. But the last mile, like your fulfillment. Yeah, last mile, we yeah. outsource that we outsource to that, a partner. Yeah. yeah. You yeah. have a partner. We have outsource. a partner that we work with that is fantastic. Um, cold chain maintained the whole way through. Um, fantastic tracking of delivery, fantastic standards. Um, and yeah, we've been really lucky to partner up with them because they don't really work, tend to work with a lot of other startup businesses. So we were fortunate in that regard. Um, but yeah, it's one of those things last mile that it's a huge endeavor to take on yourself. So we find Especially it- Especially with Coal Foods. I mean, exactly. you've got to keep it in a firmly it, That's it. It's a business in and of itself. But I think um, we're also like exploring options, um, as Josh mentioned, around you know dry ice and things like that, that would actually open up other means of delivery transport where you might not necessarily need the refrigerated or frozen vans to be- you know, delivering the products. So we've got a lot of like space to play around in that, but um, we usually let the experts do their thing. It's a very interesting model. I mean, as I said earlier, I've invested in it, but as a, it's a very interesting model. Um, I think, I mean, it's a shit thing to say, but COVID's helped it. Yeah. Um, you know, it really has. Um, I, a lot of people I talk to, especially people in my age group, don't want to sit inside in a restaurant anymore. They don't want to sit inside. Mm. Happy if they can be outside, but you can't do it in the winter for a start. But also outside usually is limited because our, you know, regulations that are in, in this country, at least in the city, don't allow you to sit outside very much. There's, you know, because, you know, it's a footpath and there's safety issues and all that other bullshit yeah. everyone goes on about. So you can't really find somewhere to go. And But we still don't. I don't want to be eating the stuff out of, you know, some of the big department stores where they where that, that frozen meals because, you know, I feel like I'm getting, um, I'm dudded. You know, mm. like it's not cheap, it's not expensive, but it's sort of boring. But I'd love to be able to get stuff from some good restaurants, but I don't know where the hell to get I don't want to go there to get it. And yeah. I, plus, I can't be stuffed getting up and driving there to pick it up as a takeaway either. Yeah. It, that's pretty annoying, to be honest with you. I, I think also our model as well, with the way that we do it, we are agnostic about where you are or where the restaurant is because we consolidate it. So we can ship out, you know, to Central Coast, for example, um, from a restaurant in Surrey Hills. Like yeah, it, yeah. it doesn't matter. You can't do that on a Eats. But I think, you know, just taking a sample of end of one with chef prep, um, our staff don't want to come back in the office. And I think we've now gone through a generational shift where people, you know, they want maybe an office to go into one or two days a week, but people don't want to be in the office nine to five anymore. And actually um, people want to probably move into more suburbs, you know, where mm. you can have a bigger house or live a bit further away from the city, you know, be closer to a beach or, you know, a nice area and not be crammed in an apartment, which now means that, you know, all the density and benefits of that me of like, I can pop downstairs and go to the restaurant. Or well, if you're living in the suburbs, you don't have that and you're working from home, you just need food in the fridge. It's like, well, these are new ways of working in restaurants now. And what they're saying to us is like, this is the new reality. Like people come to us for entertainment, um, but like the, the people, we need new ways to generate revenue streams. And this is one of them, you know, um, where you can actually make money by having a different view of the customer and serving different customers and doing it in different ways. And it's an evolution that's happened of COVID where people are changing the way they work um, and where they live even. So I think it's yeah, tied into that. That's a really good point. And I think it also is a huge benefit to our restaurant partners because it's not cannibalizing their existing customer base. Yeah. So if you look at, you know, things like Uber Eats and other delivery platforms where you've got that, you know, five kilometer radius for delivery, a lot of those people that are being serviced by those platforms are existing, you know, customers of that restaurant who so would sometimes- limited. Yeah, so who would, you know, come in and dine in for, um, you know, those experiences, whereas we're giving those restaurants access to customers. That- I'm, I'm an example of that. By yeah. Way. Where yeah. I live, yeah. it's a lot of them don't deliver to. 
Yeah. It's yeah. just that too far out. Yeah. In these suburbs. I'm a little far out on this, like about as far out on these suburbs as you can get. Yeah. And a lot of them say, so we don't deliver out there. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. which means I'm sort of limited to the, what I can order on um, t- t- in terms of takeaway, which means, yeah, and I, I'm actually, I, I love the idea um, and uh, I haven't yet tried it yet, but I'm going to try it. I, I'd say to everybody, like for me, um, give Chef Prep a crack, just like Chef Prep's giving it a crack. Yeah. Give it a crack. <laughs> give it a crack. It's not bad saying it, actually. Give us a crack. Yeah. Um, and uh, it could be your strap line going forward. It could be. Give us a crack. I want to thank you both very much <laughs> for your time. You. Um, I appreciate the um, intellect you've been putting into this. And um, don't forget to tell Alex, your dad, that I'll call him straight back. I will. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks, Thanks. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Mentor with Mark Boris. Audio and production is by Jessica Smalley. Production assistance, Simon McDermott. This is a Mentored Podcast. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.